Take your Bible, if you will, and I want to spend some time in the Word this morning. I want to apologize for missing the last couple of times some things beyond my control pulled me away. But I want to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, give you a perspective that I hope will be helpful to you. Paul writing to Timothy, wanting Timothy to understand how it will be to have ministry in the world and in the church, gives him a lot of instruction regarding his ministry, particularly in this epistle. Second Timothy is the last letter Paul ever wrote, and then he died. And he is passing, as it were, the baton to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he wants him to know that ministry is going to be difficult. You are being trained here with the purpose of ministry in mind, uh, whether that ministry is uh, here or around the world some other place. You're going to be involved with the church. And you're going to find that ministry, as well as you might be prepared for it, is difficult. Verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3 says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, the last days is a big term that refers to times since the Messiah came. We are in the last days. 1 John 2.18, John says, My little children, it is the last time. Peter said, Christ has appeared once in the end of the age. Several times we learn that it is the last hour. It is the time of the end. The coming of the Lord is near. So we're in the last days. It started when Christ came the first time. And Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, difficult times will come. Now let me give you a little bit of insight into those words. The word difficult means dangerous. Dangerous. It can even be translated violent. But it has the idea of danger. The word times is not chronos, like chronology, like calendar time or clock time. It's kairos, which means epochs or eras or seasons. And the verb will come means will set in or even be at hand or nearby. They'll be near and they'll set in. Summing it up, during the period in which we live, since Christ first came and until he comes again, dangerous epics will set in. But we're living in a dangerous situation. To show you how dangerous it is, he goes on and says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then look at this, holding to a form of godliness. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. You read verse 2 and 3 and 4 and you think you must be describing some people in a prison somewhere. Some people who have been known as violent, wicked people. Self-lovers, money lovers, boasters, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And that sounds like the catalog of the worst people in society. And then verse 5 says, all the time they hold to a form of what? Of godliness. You know where these people live? They live in the, take a wild guess, church. In the church. 
And they're very effective in what they do. Verse 6 says uh, they enter into households, sometimes by Christian television or Christian radio or books or magazines or literature or tapes or personally. And they captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. They purport to be educated, but verse 7 says they never come to the knowledge of the truth. They are fakes and phonies like Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. They also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. This is a fascinating text. Wish we had time to dig into all of the elements of it, but suffice it to say this. In the last days, dangerous epics will come. People whose lives are wretched, basically. People who, I'm, we might say, would make a black mark on a piece of coal. Uh, begin to influence. And they influence in the church. They have a form of godliness. You might have expected verse 5 to say they hate godliness. It doesn't say that. They maintain a form of it, a facade of it. But they deny the real power. Life in the church is dangerous. Very dangerous. People ask me very often, in fact, the next issue of Christianity Today will have, I think, an article about me. And the question that Christianity Today is asking is, why does this guy write all these controversial books? Why is it that you're always writing books that stir up controversy? And my answer is, I don't stir the controversy up, I try to solve it. We live in dangerous times. I just finished a book called Charismatic Chaos. should be available pretty quick. I don't know if they've arrived on campus. We ought to get them here for you. It's an assessment of the charismatic movement, which is a grave danger to the church. People don't like me to write that book. In the introduction to the book, I, I quote Benny Hinn. You know Benny Hinn, who blows and people fall over? <laughs> Benny Hinn says, if anybody disagrees with me... I wish I had a Holy Ghost machine gun to blow his head off. Paul Crouch on Channel 40 said, Anybody who questions our theology stinks. And then he said, Go to hell. They don't want anybody to debate their theology. They don't want to be exposed for what they really are. But they're very dangerous. And yet the church today is more likely to tolerate that danger than to expose it. We live in threatening... Menacing, dangerous times. Why? Because of what has infiltrated the church. And I want to give you a little bit of a perspective on that historically, if I can. If you go back in church history, you will find uh, several dangerous seasons have come into the life of the church. And you need to understand them. Because the church accumulates them. In other words, they don't come and go, they come and stay. They change form, but they come and stay. For example... From the year 500 A.D. to 1500, we have a period known as the Dark Ages. During that period, guess who ruled the Western world? The Church. The Holy Roman Church ruled the world. The Roman Catholic Church ruled the Western world. And yet it's called the Dark Ages. During that period of a thousand years... Sacramentalism was the greatest danger to the church. You know what I mean by sacramentalism? Sacramentalism takes the sacraments and assumes that they minister saving grace. 
Sacramentalism says that salvation comes through external mechanical means. That spirituality comes through external mechanical means. In other words, you become a Christian because you do something physically. You take in the host, which is the wafer. You drink the cup. You light a candle. You pray a prayer. You genuflect. You rub some beads. You go to mass. You go to penance. Confess your sins. There's some external mechanical prescription, some automatic outward function that ministers saving grace. For example, Roman Catholics believe that saving grace comes to them through the bread and the cup. They believe that saving grace comes to them and forgiveness comes to them through saying their beads the number of times the priest tells them to say it. They believe that saving grace comes to a child through water baptism at birth. They believe that saving grace comes to a person who is dying through extreme unction, the last rite. And if they don't get that right, they'll die in their sins and go to hell. So they reduce religion to mechanics, externals, prescriptions, and ceremonies. Martin Luther, of course, attacked this heretical and blasphemous institution and its sacramentalism successfully, and he brought about, really, the uh, Protestant Reformation. But sacramentalism was a great danger in the church for a thousand years. Listen, it's still with us. It is still with us. We have it all over the place. Lutheran theology moved away from Roman Catholicism, but the Lutheran Church even today maintains a huge element of sacramentalism. And I would think it would be safe to say that millions of Lutherans are still hoping for their salvation in the mechanics of what they do. The mechanical liturgy. Stand up, sit down, say this, read this, pray this. There are many Anglicans or Episcopalians in the same situation. There is still sacramentalism deep in the Greek Orthodox Church. Sacramentalism always poses a danger because it assumes, listen carefully, that the church is a surrogate Christ. And the idea of sacramentalism is to connect you with the system and not with the Savior. It's a grave danger. And in Christianity it is still a severe danger. You will find today that the Protestant Evangelical Church is courting the Roman Church and courting the Eastern Orthodox Church. Recently, uh, Paul Crouch of TBN was in Russia and he met with the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, who by the measurement of all of the Christians in Russia would not be a Christian, and said this great Christian man saved the Soviet Union by his own prayers personally and embraced him. At the same time, Jan Crouch met with Mother Teresa. And she said in an article she wrote, she said, When I saw Mother Teresa for the first time, the only thing I could do was fall on my knees and worship her. And I had a foretaste of what it will be like, she said, when I meet Jesus Christ face to face. Do these people not understand the danger of a sacramental religion? Do they not understand the danger of believing that you attach yourself to the church through mechanical means and that is your salvation rather than you attach yourself to the living God through the spiritual means of faith and that is your salvation? The two can't mingle. The church must make a distinction. That's a danger to the church.
There's a second thing that came, if you follow the flow of history. It was only really about 200 years after the Reformation in the 1700s and the 18th century. About the time of the rise to, to power of Napoleon, that the church began to abandon Reformation faith. And instead of Reformation faith, you cut the new danger we'll call rationalism. In the 18th century, simply theology turned to philosophy, and they said, if it isn't reasonable, it isn't true. Bottom line. It substituted rationalism. Why? Because the Enlightenment was an amazing time. You're coming out of 1,500 years of dark ages. Very little human advancement. The church has everybody captive. The church has them all captive to this system of sacramentalism. There's no free expression. All of a sudden, the lid blows off in the Reformation. And out of the Reformation comes a new freedom for ideas and thoughts and concepts and discussion and study. Into that comes the Enlightenment. All kinds of an explosion of ideas. And and because man advanced so rapidly and the seeds of the Industrial Revolution were sown and everything was moving and advancing, man became enamored with his intellect. And so he decided that he was no longer going to worship what some institution told him. He was going to worship his own mind and out of that came rationalism. And the church said, God can only be understood rationally and anything that isn't rational, anything that isn't perceivable and understandable to the human mind isn't true and anything in the Bible that isn't logical and reasonable and scientifically and experimentally proven is not true and so they debunked the Bible. One theologian said after his work on the Bible, only 26 verses are actually true. The Bible had to bow to what was reasonable, and the supernatural had to go. The primary book, The Age of Reason, by Thomas Paine, he lived from 1737 till 1809. He wrote The Age of Reason. The first half of that book is a treatment of the supremacy of human logic, and the second half attempts to debunk the Bible. Whatever great Reformation revival had been born out of the 1517 Wittenberg thesis of the great Martin Luther, whatever had come out of John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon and Zwingli, whatever had flowed from the genius of those men spiritually was somehow destroyed in rationalism. The mind became the ultimate determiner of truth. People questioned the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the authority of God. The human mind became everything. Reason was God. That's still with us, folks, in case you don't know. Most of the seminaries and most of the schools in this country today would teach a rationalistic view of Scripture. Most of them would be into what they call demythologizing the Bible, getting all the myths out. For many today in theological liberalism and neo-orthodoxy, the mind is still supreme. A third wave came, and they're coming faster now because communication technique is better. The third wave came about the 19th century. We'll call it orthodoxism. Orthodoxism. The 19th century spelled the arrival of mass printed Bibles. And for the first time in history, men and women could have a Bible in their own hands. But the tragedy of it is that rationalism had so stripped the church of its convictions that even though people had the Bible and personally held it in their hands and could read it and therefore came to know Christ, they never had a strong conviction about its veracity. 
And so you had in Europe a very nominal kind of Christianity. It lacked heart and soul and depth and zeal. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, who died in 1855, wrote that people had Bibles, but not the type of spiritual life taught in the Bible. And so there was a kind of dead, cold, indifferent, apathetic orthodoxy. And I submit to you we have that with us today. And some of you have come out of churches like that. Where people believe the right thing. They have a Bible under their arm, but they don't live a godly life. They don't live a spiritual life. They don't count the cost to walk with God. They were ignorant of the realities in the Bible they said they believed. Sacramentalism, rationalism, orthodoxism still around. Then in the 20th century, let's add another one, politicism. Politicism. What do we mean by that? Well, if you look at Europe, you see at the era of Hitler... Hitler came in and, of course, he wanted to sweep up all of Europe. The church was very powerful, the liberal church, which would be basically the rational church. The dead Orthodox church was still very powerful and sacramental Catholicism was still very powerful in Europe. And Hitler knew if he was going to capture Europe, if he was going to start on his way to take over the world, he was going to have to deal with these religions. So rather than become anti-religious, he tried to change religion. I don't know if you know this, but he tried to politicize the church in Germany. The Nazi party wanted to change the character of Christianity. So Hitler started what was called Deutsch Christen, or the German Christian faith movement. What he did was, he first of all went to the Old Testament, and he eliminated it. Why? Because it lifted up the Jews, and that just didn't fit. Then he went to the New Testament and took out all positive references to the Jews and all passages of Scripture that associated Jesus with the Jews. Typical of these German Christians was Hans Kerl, Minister of Church Affairs, appointed by Hitler. In 1937, Hans Kerl said in a speech, Positive Christianity is Nazism. How's that? Positive Christianity is Nazism. Nazism is doing the, the will of God. God's will reveals itself in German blood. Christianity is not dependent on the Apostles' Creed. True Christianity is represented by the party, and especially the Fuhrer. The church has not been able to generate the faith that moves mountains, but the Fuhrer has. The Fuhrer is the herald of the new revelation. Hitler is the Messiah. This is a new Christianity. In order to capture the hearts of people very, very deeply steeped in sacramentalism, rational religion, and orthodoxism, they had to have a kind of Christianity that was tolerable. And it worked. Church history shows us these dangers. Sacramentalism, making the church a surrogate Christ and connecting you with it by mechanical means. Rationalism, setting reason above revelation so that man sits in judgment on the word of God. Orthodoxism, substituting correct theology for holy living. I just picked up a... Somebody invited me to a conference to order the tapes of a conference. The name of the conference held in Florida was the Bad Attitude Baptist Blowout Conference. Literally, the Bad Attitude Baptist Blowout Conference. Here's the thing I got in the mail. Right theology, no clue about what a godly life is. 
They justified their cantankerous, vicious attitudes. Politicism, blending the church and the state. Still going on, isn't it? Still going on. Social gospel, moral majority, all the efforts at uh, post-millennial approaches. Pat Robertson's into that up to his ears. He said when he was running for president, if I get elected president, we'll be well on our way to giving the kingdoms of the world to Christ. What? Now, there's some more. Follow these through. Now we're starting to move into our own century with Nazism. Let's go into the, the 50s. What in 1950 would be the number one danger to the church? Ecumenicalism or ecumenism. Ecumenism simply means to bring everybody together. From a Greek word, oikomeno. Everybody remains in the same house. Oikos, house. Put everybody in the same place. Bring everybody together. It's the sentimental attitude that says we have to agree and love each other, and so we forget theology, we forget doctrine, we just throw our arms around each other. And as Paul Kraut said on television, anybody who wants to make an, an, an issue is doing nothing but throwing around doctrinal doo-doo. Great erudite phrase. In other words, we don't want to tolerate theology. We don't want to tolerate doctrine. We don't care about truth. Anybody who's dealing on that level is nitpicking. The liberals try to pull off an ecumenical movement. They couldn't do it. The charismatics are trying, and they're succeeding where the liberals failed. Everybody gets together. Sentimentalism replaces truth. Then in the 60s, we got another dangerous movement, experientialism. Experientialism, And that, of course, was primarily true of the charismatic movement. They began to develop truth out of their experience. That is a threatening danger. That's why I wrote the book, Charismatic Chaos, which takes on that issue. The idea that truth comes from within me. Truth rises up within me. Jesus told me this. God told me this. The Spirit told me this. This is what I think it means. This is my impression. My spiritual experience was this. Therefore, that's what's true. That kind of experientialism is a terrible danger. Why? Because in effect it says the Bible must serve to support my experience. It doesn't say my experience has to submit to the Scripture, but I make the Scripture submit to my experience. A seventh has come in the 70s, and they're coming real fast now as communication speeds up, and that's subjectivism. And I want to spend a few moments on this. Subjectivism. What is subjectivism? It's simply, we could call it self-centeredness, or the age of analysis. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery wrote, Our time is possibly the most subjective period in all of church history. He wrote this in the 70s. Today, everybody talks in psychological terms. We enjoy nothing better than to probe our inner life and its real or imagined frustrations. We wallow in our misery. We go to psychologists, we go to psychiatrists, we go to counselors. This predilection has been called navel-watching by some people. That is to say, we enjoy nothing better than to sit down narcissistically and look at our own psychic navel. This delightful activity allows us to become completely involved in ourselves. We enjoy our problems. Someone has called our epoch the age of analysis, with particular reference to psychoanalysis. And it is that, for we want to solve all our problems by subjective concentration on the problem. Luther, in diametric opposition to hypersubjectivism, says, and I quote, Christianity in its entirety lies outside us. 
in the righteousness of Christ and in the mercy of God, end quote. Montgomery goes on, the man who has spiritual problems will never solve those problems by looking in upon himself. There is no solution inside. Rather, the solution is outside. The solution lies in what God did for us on the cross, and that depends not upon ourselves, but only upon the Christ who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. The danger of subjectivism has literally bathed the church in the utter confusion of psychoanalysis. Now this stuff comes, but it doesn't go. It just comes and stays. And so the longer we live in this church age, the more dangerous stuff we accumulate. Now when a person goes out to serve in a church, whether they serve as a pastor or a staff member in that church, or whatever kind of service they render, uh, they've got to confront this idea that they're dealing with people who are caught up in sacramentalism. They've got to combat that. They've got to deal with people coming out of secular education and, and theological milieus where rationalism is taught. They've got to face orthodoxism, dead, cold orthodoxy that believes right and lives wrong. They've got to deal with people who think the agenda for the church is to march on City Hall and change the political system. They've got to face all of that. In addition to that, they've got to cope with some other things that are equally frightening, like ecumenism, where if you say anything negative about another Christian, you've committed the mortal sin because we're to love each other without regard for truth. They've got to confront experientialism, people running around like loose cannons espousing all kinds of aberrant theology with no biblical control. I watched Benny Hinn last time on television, and I was just saying to myself again, why is he knocking all these people down? Why is he blowing and they're falling over? I saw him one night go like this, and the whole balcony went down. That's all learned behavior. They all know what they're supposed to do. But why does he do that? Where in the Bible does it say, blow on people and knock them over? Well, you know, it doesn't have to be in the Bible. It's, It's just the experience we got to cope with all of that. We've got people coming to Grace Church who are waiting for me to knock somebody down the same way. They think that's the normal process for someone who ministers. Then you've got psychology running rampant in the church and confusing the daylights out of the church. Let me give you one more, the eighth. And this, would be this. this is the legacy of the 80s. Sensualism. Sensualism. I have to realize that when I get up on a Sunday morning to preach the Word of God in my church, I've got people sitting in the audience whose minds are filled with pornographic images. And they're in the church. And the tolerance level for that is down so far that it's absolutely unbelievable. I never thought I'd, have, I'd come to the day where I would pick up, say, a moody monthly magazine and read an article by somebody in there telling me about the current movies that are going on. Simply because that means they've exposed themselves, if they see anything but a G movie, to some sexual innuendo, some, some immorality to one level or another. You say, oh, you're really old fat. You're right. That just shows you how far the culture's gone. It's like the frog in the, in the kettle, right? You heat the water slowly, he doesn't know that it's hot until he's dead. It's the same thing. So you, you've got sensualism invading the church, pastors falling victim to pornography, sexual sin, uh, doing all those kinds of things, and the church saying, well, we forgive you, you can stay as pastor. 
Why? Because the kind of culture we live in is comfortable with somebody like that because that's the way most of the people in the culture are. These are the dangerous things. Who knows what's ahead? Who knows? But notice how he sums this all up in verse 2. He says, men will be philautoi, self-lovers, self-lovers. This is the most tragic thing of all. This is the dominant sin, is the love of self. And if you look at our day to day, boy, this is so appropriate. You've got the subjectivism of today with everybody doing their narcissistic navel watching and the church is a place where you're supposed to solve all their little aches and pains. You've got the gospel of prosperity being preached endlessly to these people, which says you can be healthy, wealthy, and all of that. And it just feeds self-love. Let me just move off of that for a moment and expand it. The love of self is a sin, okay? It's a sin. And from the love of self, all the rest of those things in that list come. All the rest, starting in verse 2, going down through verse 4, all simply explain how the love of self is really described. Once a person has made his own desire and himself the center of his life, everything is selfish, and listen carefully, and everything that threatens to destroy selfishness is resisted. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What is the number one sin of the human heart? What is it? Number one sin of the human heart, categorically. Pride. Pride. The number one sin is pride. What is the number one virtue in our society today? If you listen to the culture, what is it? Pride. Why? Satan want to reverse everything. If you can take the number one sin and call it a virtue, you've just made people unredeemable. Because where they ought to see their sinfulness, they don't see it. We now have a society that thinks the number one virtue is self-esteem. The number one virtue is fulfillment. Pride. And the explanation for almost everything in interpersonal relationships is low self-esteem. And so if the, if the problem is low self-esteem, then the cure is high self-esteem. If the problem is a lack of self-love, then the cure is self-love. The problem is the cure is the sin and the disease is the cure. It's reversed. Self-love was always excluded from Christian theology until the 60s. And in the 60s, secular psychology found its way into the church and reversed everything. People come in with all their problems, constantly wanting help, solving them. They want what they want. They want to be fulfilled. They want self-love, self-esteem. They want to justify all of that. That is sin running rampant. Since our society now believes that self-love is the solution to everything, then self-denial and humility is the problem. So now we've taken humility, which is God's pinnacle virtue, and made it a sin, and self-love, which is God's pinnacle sin, and made it a virtue, and reversed the whole thing. Augustine writing in the city of God, said, Two cities have been founded by two loves, the earthy by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, to the contempt of self. That's the basis of it. 
Calvin in his Institutes wrote, For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has good reason for exalting himself. There is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots those most noxious pests, self-love and love of victory, or being the triumphant one. Robert Schuller wouldn't allow them to sing a hymn on his television program that said, Such a worm as I. Or a hymn that said, My sinful self, my only shame. See, our culture has reversed that. Self-love is the fruit of evolutionary theory, the fruit of existential living, and the fruit of atheistic humanism. It has no place in the Christian life which is Christ-centered and others-centered. Last time I was listening to Daryl Strawberry. Did you hear him on the news? He says he's a Christian. And he said, they were asking him why he said what he said in the new book he wrote. He said, it doesn't matter to me at all what anybody else thinks. Is that a Christian virtue? That's a product of the culture. I'll say what I want, do what I want. Be what I want, and if you don't like it, you can hang it on your ear, buddy. That's the attitude of the culture. William James, Eric Fromm, Maslow, Carl Rogers, they all said self-love, unconditional acceptance of oneself leading to true fulfillment. You want to see it as graphically as you can? Look at the gay community. Gay Pride Week. Remember that? Gay Pride Week. How about, how about Child Molester Pride Week? How about Serial Killer Pride Week? This is sin. How have we inverted all of this? God sees pride as the ultimate sin because it attempts to usurp His place. We are in a dangerous season when self-love is not only tolerated but advocated and humility is looked down on. It's really frightening. Absolutely frightening. Groucho Marx had it right. He said, I wouldn't belong to any club that would accept me as a member. We say today, my problem is I'm too humble. That's my problem. I was reading a book under the auspices of the Christian College Coalition titled Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith by David Myers and Malcolm Jeeves. We're members of the Christian College Coalition. I was interested in the book. In the chapter, one chapter in a book called A New Look at Pride. Just listen to this. A New Look at Pride. And they show in this chapter that all the research being done on personality shows that people are not only not lacking in self-esteem and they're not lacking in self-love, they have it in sinful abundance. In fact, in all their tests, they couldn't find anybody who didn't have it. It is a self-serving, self-loving, self-justifying bias, they said, that is at the heart of every single person. And they follow this, this line. People accept more responsibility for success than failure, more responsibility for good deeds than bad. Time and time again, experimenters have found that people readily accept credit when told they had succeeded, yet they attribute failure to external factors such as bad luck or the problem's inherent impossibility. In other words, when they succeeded, it was them, and when they didn't, it was some other reason. These self-serving attributions have been observed not only in laboratory situations, but also with athletes, students, drivers, married people. 
Self-concept researcher Anthony Greenwald summarizes people experience life completely through a self-centered filter. They all give, when tested, favorably biased self-ratings. They all have what this writer calls the totalitarian ego and always positively evaluate themselves. They even have a basic belief in their own infallibility. And it's often triggered by the phrase, I knew it all the time. They're unrealistic optimists, which is what they call the Pollyanna syndrome. They always think everything's going to be good because they're such good people. And when you ask them how they would act in a certain situation, they always come on the high side of their nobility when the reality may not even be related to that. So the heart, you see, is very deceitful. It'll tell you you're humble when you're proud. Samuel Johnson said, He that overvalues himself will undervalue others, and he that undervalues others will oppose them. That's right. Now, if you live like this, loving yourself, and that's the culture in which we live, the subjective, sensual culture, what's going to happen? Look back at the text for a minute and let me remind you. In the dangerous time of subjectivism and sensualism that we live, men will be lovers of themselves. Okay, here's what will happen. They'll become lovers of money. Because if you love yourself, you want what can fulfill what you want. They'll become boastful and arrogant. Well, that's obvious. If you love yourself, you're going to blow your own horn. They'll become revilers. What does that mean? They'll speak evil of other people because nobody measures their own stature. They'll be disobedient to parents. Why do what your parents say? You're going to be proud. You're going to call your own shots. They'll be ungrateful. You can never satisfy a self-lover because nothing ever is able to satisfy that love. They will be unholy. What does that mean? They won't necessarily do what's good. They'll do what satisfies. They'll be unloving. Obviously, they're so in love with themselves, they have no capacity to love another person. Listen, young people, before you pick a life person, make sure you find somebody with genuine humility or you're going to spend your whole life dealing with somebody who only demands that you love them and has no capacity to love you. Irreconcilable? Why should they reconcile with anybody? Why should they be peacemakers? Malicious gossips? Why shouldn't they say what they think? What's the difference? What do they care what people think? Without self-control? Control what? I'm going to fulfill myself. Brutal if need be? Haters of good if they want what's evil? Treacherous or dangerous? Reckless? Conceited? Loving pleasure more than loving God? And you know what? The, the shock of all shocks? You're going to find them in the church having a form of godliness without the real power. It's always been dangerous being in the church. Church is a dangerous place. Hey, I talk to people all the time who are in churches and they are getting messed up. Somebody's pumping them full of sacramentalism in some church. Somebody else is pumping them full of rationalism, denying the truth of God's word. Some other churches, they're having to deal with a dead, cold orthodoxy that's cut the heart out of them. And they think they're spiritual when they're carnal. Some of them are caught up in political stuff in churches that are concerned with changing America rather than changing hearts. Some of them are engulfed in ecumenical churches where they don't want to deal with doctrine but only with loving everybody. Some of them are swept up in the charismania and the experientialism. Some of them are caught up in psychology and subjectivism. Some of them in environments where they're tolerant of sensual behavior. The church can be, young people, a very dangerous place. Dangerous. And look at verse 13 if your Bible's still open. It says, Evil men will grow worse and worse. It isn't going to get better, it's going to get what? Worse. We have a tremendous challenge as we go out 
into the danger of the church to be what God wants us to be. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that your word has spoken to us. I thank you, Lord, for these young people, and I pray, O God, that you will give them the spiritual convictions and the spiritual strength and the godliness and the virtue and the wisdom to stand firm in the dangerous place, the church, and hold up the truth. For your glory we ask, in Christ's name, amen.